lovers. Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to episode 17 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. And today, my guest and I are going to take the gloves off about what is really driving failures of translation from animals to people in biomedical research. It's about to get very real on Get Real. Hey, animal lovers. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Get Real. Today's episode is a bit different because it's based on an email I got through the Get Real website from one of our listeners who is a young graduate student working on her PhD who is expressing some frustrations about what it is she's going through as a student. And so I'd like to start the episode by sharing with you some of the things she wrote to me. Hello, I found your podcast when searching for new podcasts to listen to that address animal research ethics. After listening to a few of your episodes, I've come to quickly appreciate the work you're doing. So first and foremost, thank you. As a PhD candidate, I've personally been struggling with the mental toll that working with mice has taken on me. My thesis project is focused heavily on the impact of stress on cancer treatments, and I've really struggled to justify the studies I conduct due to the obvious lack of translatability to human cancer therapies. In other words, I've become quite frustrated by the work I do in pursuit of my PhD because it feels like that's all I'm doing with these studies, getting a PhD. The more published studies I read, the more frustrated I get because it's becoming more and more obvious that the mouse models we have for cancer, and many other diseases for that matter, are incredibly biased by their housing conditions. These housing conditions for our mice cause so much stress in these animals that the information we collect from these research mice poorly represents human pathology and often holds very little translational value for the treatment of human diseases. Now, I absolutely do not mean to imply that I think animal studies are useless. That's not at all true. I just think that we owe these animals and the patients relying on our studies to treat these diseases the time and effort it takes to rethink the conditions in which we house research mice in order to make them better models. I was quite surprised <laughs> when I got this email because it's very intense and very honest, but I was super excited because this is the whole point of having opportunities to provide feedback to get real so that we can really get into, you know, what are the real issues? It's clear, and we know this, and we've discussed it many, many times, that animals can be very suitable models for the study of human health and disease. But it's some of these other things that they survive with. There are these variables, these potential confounds that can create some noise in the findings we get. And this person is very clearly upset. She happens to be in an academic institution that is connected physically and financially to a hospital like many institutions across the United States. And so there's a very direct animal-to-human translational factor in the way research is conducted there. And so I've invited her to join us today to explain maybe a little bit more about the source of this frustration she's expressed in her email. I'm going to keep her anonymous for a million reasons. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, this is a really great and really unique opportunity, and I really appreciate the chance to talk to somebody who has the same concerns and frustrations and goals as I do. Yeah. 
Well, um, maybe we can start by asking you to, you know, bottom line this for us. Explain to our listeners what exactly it is that you're studying, what your project is about, and why your experience thus far is frustrating you with respect to whether or not you're actually doing something for the patients connected to you in that hospital. Yes. So the lab that I am a part of is very centered around the idea of understanding how stress impacts cancer and specifically immunology in the context of cancer. So how our immune system controls tumor growth. And one of the ways that we actually model stress is through temperature. And so it's been known for decades in our lab and many, many others that the temperature that mice are housed at and the temperature that mice have been housed at for decades actually falls below what is known as the thermoneutral zone. It's a comfortable temperature for people. This is usually around 20 to 22 degrees Celsius, which happens to be the temperature that we house our mice at. It's standard. It's set by our animal research institutions. And it's something that labs across the country and the world have to follow. They have to be housed at a standard temperature. But what we know, again, is that this temperature is actually colder than the preferred temperature of mice. So our preferred temperature as clothed humans is that 20 to 22 degrees Celsius that mice are usually housed at. But for mice, their thermoneutral zone or thermoneutral temperature is actually somewhere around 30 degrees Celsius. So this is how we model stress. So let me make sure I understand that. I mean, basically what you're saying is that every species has this thermoneutral zone. And this is a, a temperature range at which you're sort of metabolically at balance, right? It's the most efficient temperature for you to carry out your necessary life functions. Yeah, um, animals that rely on themselves to regulate their temperature. So, they, so endotherms or warden-blooded animals. Right. So that range for us at which we are efficient metabolically at achieving our life functions is about 20 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than what it is for mice. So when we house mice at temperatures that are comfortable for us, which is how we house them all over the world, um, that is stressful for the mice because their little bodies have to work extra hard in order for them to achieve that efficient state for their metabolism to carry out their life functions, right? Um, it's the human equivalent of living in the nude at approximately 45 degrees Fahrenheit 24-7 or the same metabolic demand of walking about 65 miles per day. So essentially they engage in a physiological process that allows us to model stress. So it's the same sort of signaling that's happening to keep them warm that happens when they're stressed. I see. Basically, what you're saying is that the standard temperature at which mice in research are maintained nearly everywhere in basic science all over the world is inherently stressful for them. Yeah, exactly. They're a stressed model, no matter what disease you're studying. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And that's it's not just a model that is used in cancer research either. It's used in different disease models that are known to be affected by stress or have some sort of immune component. So cardiovascular disease, asthma, um, stroke, and even anxiety and depression themselves. So what you're saying is that people who are studying these things, whether they're doing basic research or translational research, they're starting off with a flawed model because the animals are stressed from the beginning. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And it's not just from temperature, but that's certainly one factor that's contributing to a stress model. And that's one factor that, yes, can be easily changed, but there are a number of other factors that contribute as well. 
And uh, you identified this as a problem early on in your PhD project. And you were told, well, you know, just roll with it, right? And your PhD project will be, by default then, about the impact of stress on uh, cancer immunotherapies. But you didn't want to do that. You thought, well, gee, it seems to me like the standard temperatures that we raise mice in is a confound, right? Shouldn't we be doing science differently if we're really going to help the patients connected to this institution and the hospital across the way? So I started thinking that this was something that needed to be addressed. You can't go and study anything really until you have a sound model, right? That's the first thing they teach you. You have to have a model that addresses the question that you want to ask. But how do you do that, especially in the context of cancer and something that relies so heavily on the immune system, which we've known for years and years and years that the immune system is heavily influenced by stress in one way or another. How do you study stress in the immune system or just the immune system itself when you know so much about how housing conditions are inducing stress? It is the baseline that they're at. And so I started to get frustrated with seminar after seminar and workshop after workshop and poster session after poster session that I saw because all of these mice and these beautiful studies, they're all being housed at the standard temperature that I use to model stress. And so I kind of just wanted to shift my project's focus to better understanding the impact that thermoneutral temperature has on possibly, you know, making our mice better models for the diseases that we want to study. And that was kind of met with mixed feelings And the reasoning for that was because the project was focused so heavily on understanding the mice and less about understanding immunology that the response was more of, um, you know, this isn't vet school. I can't say I was surprised, but I was kind of taken aback and my frustration had grown because you have to consider the biology and the physiology and the genetics of these animals in order to do what we're here to get a PhD for. And so the fact that in their opinion, it wasn't worth pursuing because my committee and the department wouldn't have supported it is really just bizarre to me because these are the models that we're using to generate supposedly good data. Well, it's interesting because we talk over and over and over again about the reproducibility crisis and the lack of rigor in our science. And I guess the thing that I have a problem with is that, you know, we have this obligation to ensure that we're using the most optimal model possible in order to translate our findings into what we hope will become a treatment or a cure for human beings, right? And that's difficult already. There's a lot of biological conservation across species, which is what allows us to learn from animals and apply things to human beings. But if we're using flawed models from the start, then the likelihood of us getting to that place of translation becomes smaller and smaller, right? We keep hearing about 95% of the medications that are evaluated in animals never make it to market. Well, we keep hearing that. And of course, the animal rights people keep saying, well, that's just because, you know, animals aren't appropriate models for studying the human condition. And we know that that's not true. It's been discounted on this show and other places many times, right? It's not that. I do think there's a lot of noise in our science, however. So your point about trying to characterize this specific noise, which is common all over the world (laughs) and is probably impacting studies on every kind of disease we can think of, was really valuable. And other people in your department have made it very clear that this temperature thing is a problem. And yet one of the things you told me in our conversation previously was that still nobody wants to do anything about it, right? They all know that these temperatures are too low for the mice to really be an appropriate model for anything because they're starting out stressed. They all know, and yet they continue to do their studies and write grants for more and more studies using the same flawed model over and over and over again when they all know 
that it's a flawed model and that the data that comes from these studies is questionable because they're starting with a flawed model. They all know, and yet they keep doing it. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure if I can pinpoint one reason or another, but what I keep coming back to is that nobody wants to change. Nobody wants to adjust their models. And I think it's also an issue of accountability, right? Because then if you change your model and you account for the fact that temperature has been affecting your outcomes and your experimental results, that's a level of accountability where you might be saying, you know, is everything that I've done previously now worthless, right? Is everything that I've been studying completely out of context and useless? These researchers would have to change the way they do what they do. They would have to rethink their experimental designs. They would have to rethink their models and their questions. I'm not going to lie. It would be a pretty big change to how we do science. And it's such a little change, but it would change the way we do everything, right? Um, It would affect our questions. It would affect our outcomes. What we know about the immune system, what we know about cancer immunology would be different because you're studying it in a different context. And I think that is really scary. Well, if they find different results by changing the temperature, right? If they do the same studies at this less stressful, more preferred thermoneutral zone of mice, and they get completely different results, what does that mean in the context of their career? I think that's an important question, and I can see that being a valid fear. Does that mean that everything else they've ever done is questionable now? Does that mean papers have to be retracted? Does that mean they lose their job? Does it mean they're not going to get grants anymore? We are researchers are all like you. They come to science because they're super excited about biology and they want to do good in the world for people and animals. They want to change lives for the better. And the system is set up in such a way that you can do that up to a point, right? So you ran right into it. You wanted to ask the question, why don't we study this particular thing that causes confounds a little more so that we can better inform the data that comes from everybody's studies all over the world? Because if we can make mice a better model and 95% or more of the animals in research are mice, we're going to be doing better science, right? We're going to close that gap on the 95% and increase translatability to human beings. And they don't want you to study that because what happens to them then? They all come in and they want to do this great work, but then they get stuck on what I'm going to call the hamster wheel of science, right? I have thought about this. And I think that the system, the biomedical research machine has trapped our researchers. They're stuck Let me break this down for you, right? When a researcher applies for a grant, and let's say the researcher gets $10 million, more than half of that goes to the institution. So there's all of this pressure that comes from the top of the institution down to our researchers. More, 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 more. Keep publishing. Keep studying. Keep doing. Keep producing. Put it out there. Put it out there. More, 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 more. This is partly, I think, why they view the lab animal people as obstacles. Listen, every time you give us a new rule to follow, you slow us down. Don't you see the pressure on me to publish, 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 (laughs) right? I've got to keep going because the more I publish, the more grants I'm going to get, the more likely it is I'm going to get tenured and be able to keep my career and continue to do science. The reputation of the institution has improved. And of course, we know now more than half of what goes out there is questionable because of the lack of rigor. And they have to keep doing it anyway. And they know they have to keep doing it anyway. They're stuck on this hamster wheel of having to keep doing this, even though they have questions about it, right? That's why you said, I don't understand the people in our department. They know this, and yet they keep doing these studies, knowing that this is the problem. That's why they're stuck on the hamster wheel, and they're stuck because the biomedical research machine, the funding mechanism for research, 
has evolved into something that incentivizes quantity over quality. It's as simple as that. What if we change the whole system, right? We keep talking about reproducibility and making adjustments to certain variables. But I guess what I'd like to come back to is, you know, we can do all of that. We can teach people how to write better papers. We can start tracking the variables. We can teach people how to design studies more carefully and involve the lab animal folks, right? But at the end of the day, unless we change the incentivization to value quality more than quantity, nothing changes. And so how do we do that? Well, I have a proposal. My suggestion is that when a researcher applies for a grant, let's say with the NIH, the largest granting agency in the world, that they get a score for the value of their study, which is what happens now, but that the institution must also get a score. And let's just call it a rigor score. So in this proposed model, institutions competing for federal funds would have to shoulder the burden for improving and maintaining rigor at all levels of their animal research program in order to elevate their rigor score. And the NIH would require institutions to develop a federally overseen mechanism for doing so. In other words, that researcher could be an amazing researcher and have a fantastic score, but he or she is not going to get a grant unless the institution has an acceptable rigor score as well. And that would cause the institution then to start investing more time and energy on ensuring rigor at all of the various levels. Right now, they don't have to do any of that. It's basically free money, right? We pressure the researchers. They publish what they publish. You know, they get more and more grants. We get more and more money. Yay us. I mean, they certainly have to invest in the infrastructure and all of that, but they're not actively engaged and there's no motivation for the institutions to be actively engaged in improving rigor at all of the levels from the animal on up through all of the folks involved in the research projects, right? So how would it work? Well, We could use a model that exists right now that we know works very well, and that is the ICTR model or the Institute for Clinical and Translational Research model that exists in many medical schools all across the country. Basically, this institute is created within the institution. The NIH funds the creation of this institute, and basically what it does is it focuses on translating basic science discoveries into research with humans. So what I'm suggesting is that we could do a similar thing for the basic science that's supposed to be informing translational research. I mean, really, we sort of have the cart before the horse here. The first thing we ought to be doing is nailing down the basic research, making sure that that's as rigorous and reproducible as it can possibly be. Then we should be talking about translation. So in my model then, we could create something very similar, only something that's geared toward basic research, and we could call it the Institute for Scientific Rigor and Animal Welfare. And just like in the ICTR model, there could be different departments within our Institute for Scientific Rigor and Animal Welfare that focus on different things to help support the researchers and the institution to serve science in rigorous reproducible ways. So there could be a department, for example, that is uh, focused on training and mentoring researchers to make sure that they are, you know, providing the level of rigor and transparency expected in study design and conduct, in animal welfare, and in their publications and their reporting results. There could be another department in this Institute for Scientific Rigor and Animal Welfare that focuses on providing resources, tools, and guidance in refining animal welfare and improving scientific rigor. There could be another department in our Institute for Scientific Rigor and Animal Welfare that provides support to our researchers for grant preparations um, that reflects the investigator and the institutional commitments to scientific rigor, animal welfare, and transparency. Another department in our Institute for Scientific Rigor and Animal Welfare could be focused on evaluating IACUC function to ensure consistency 
with institutional expectations for rigor, animal welfare, and transparency in this incredibly important committee. We know that not all eye cooks are the same, and the institution doesn't really oversee their function. This would be an opportunity for the institution to help train these folks and ensure that they as well understood the institution's commitment to rigor and what the expectations were for animal welfare, rigor, and transparency. There could be another department in our Institute for Scientific Rigor and Animal Welfare that was focused on evaluating ongoing research projects to make sure that everything is flowing the way it should with respect to institutional expectations for scientific rigor and transparency. And this is my favorite part. (laughs) There would be another department in our Institute for Scientific Rigor and Animal Welfare whose job it would be to track what's happening in the institution and collect all the appropriate documentation because on some periodic interval, let's say annually, the institution will be responsible for submitting a, quote, institution rigor score. And this thing would be based on some established NIH criteria, and the institution would have to provide supporting documentation to the NIH that supports their contention for why their rigor score is what it is when they submit it. And the best part of this is that the database that they would provide all of this on would be available for the public to review. Now, if that's not transparent, I don't know what is. The bottom line is that effective solutions to this reproducibility crisis we're in really have to tie federal funding to partnerships among all of the various animal research stakeholders. And all of these folks, right, so institutional leadership, the researchers, the lab animal care folks, they all have to be on the same page. They must be singularly focused on producing the most reliable data possible to inform real, meaningful biomedical progress. And it's not punitive, right? I mean, basically what it is, think about the teamwork, right? If everybody is on the same page and they're all trying to improve the institution's rigor score, then they're all going to be on the same team, right? We're working together because we want to get more grants than institution Y on the other side of the state, right? We're competing to be the best so we can get the most money. Well, that's how we should be giving money out to people who are trying to do the best and showing that they're trying to do their best. I don't think the system is doing that right now. Where's the institutional commitment supporting these people? If the institution was supporting them in all the ways I just said, then there wouldn't be this combative relationship between the researchers and the lab animal care folks. They'd be working together and improving training and everything else they could possibly do so that at the end of the year, the institution could include all of these wonderful things they're doing to support why their rigor score, you know, should be X, Y, or Z. So why not create a similar model as the NIH has done for medical schools with these uh, ICTRs and run the same model at the basic research institutions that are doing animal work by creating these institutes for scientific rigor and animal welfare. I mean, what do you think? I think that education should be a really big part of what you're proposing. I can't tell you how many times I've had people walk up to my poster, actual researchers, people who run their own labs, and will have a really great conversation about the impact of temperature and stress. And they've never had this conversation about housing conditions and experimental outcomes in biomedical research. So I think your proposal would be a really great way to initiate that sort of education, initiate this conversation, and change the mindset that people have. If we would just create an institute dedicated to the basic science to begin with before we start creating them, you know, for translating what we have, which is questionable, into humans, we might be in a better place here. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but it seems to me like 
the cart and the horse are mixed up here. No, I think it goes back to to something that I've heard. It was Dr. Joseph Garner in a seminar that he gave that I think really resonates with everything you just said. And it was that we need to stop thinking of our mice as tools and start thinking of them as patients. You are treating a living thing that just because it's a mouse doesn't mean that you don't need to still understand its physiology and understand its biology. So why isn't that the mindset? You know, I know they're mice, but they're still a living organism that is sick that we're trying to make better. So why don't we have measures in place to help us better understand things that influence that, like housing conditions? Especially because the reason for all of these studies is that we're trying to connect it to human health and disease. That makes it all more crucial that we get these things lined up. But I think we've got to change a whole culture. The way we fund and oversee this work has to be changed, or we're going to be in this hamster wheel mode forever. Our current system has the capacity to penalize people for doing better science, and that's wrong. We've got to change that system. If we can change that model, then I think we can rapidly advance in getting our hands around these variables and improving our models so that they are more translational. So ultimately, what would you like to do around this issue? I want to make it part of the mainstream conversation. I want animal welfare to be part of graduate student training. I want it to be part of the conversations that researchers have day to day. How is stress impacting this model? I want it to be more on the radar of basic researchers, translational researchers, because right now it's not. So I guess that would be my goal, to increase awareness of the effects that housing conditions and animal welfare has on experimental outcomes, especially in biomedical research. Why? Why does that matter so much to you? Because at the end of the day, if you're not considering the factors that are impacting your experimental outcomes, you're not doing science that matters for patients. You're not doing science that's going to address this translational issue that we're having. Right. Again, it's not that animals aren't good models. It's that we are causing them to be less valuable models than they are, in large part because we didn't realize it, and now we're starting to realize it. So we need to start fixing it. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So especially for graduate students, ask questions. Question the model that you're using. Question the science that you're doing um, and pay more attention to the animals that are part of your research. Have conversations with the people in your animal facilities. I'm sure they would love to sit down and just have a conversation with you about anything to do with animal welfare. You know, at least in our institution, they're very friendly people. It's really important to start having the conversations about animal welfare and how it pertains to biomedical research. Indeed it is. Thank goodness for this young scientist's natural insight and inspiration to question the status quo because she values human and animal lives so deeply. She's in a good place in her career to tackle this issue because she isn't on the hamster wheel yet. She can still choose to see what's directly in front of her eyes because she can't yet be blinded by the consequences of challenging a system that isn't driving rigorous translatable research with animals in truly meaningful ways. She doesn't have to worry about being disposable because she isn't bringing enough grant money into her institution or because she's become an undeserving target of animal rights extremists that may threaten her institution's reputation and future funding. There's something gravely wrong with a system that values the appearance of progress over those working hard for real progress. And our researchers, our animals, and our patients deserve better. Let's replace this hamster wheel 
with a system that gives our researchers the space and support they need to do what they're made for, improving and saving lives. In the meantime, there are research rodents all over the world that are C-R-A-M-P-E-D. Find out what I mean and how we can do better on the next episode of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I hope our discussion today has inspired you to think more deeply about what you would like to see change as we shape our medical future together. Please visit our episode response page for more details about what we discussed today and send me your feedback. You'll find the link in the lower right-hand corner of our website at getrealpodcast.info. And don't forget to visit our support link while you're there and make a small monthly donation to help us keep rolling. Your commitment to me will help me keep my commitment to you. We'll talk soon.